Welcome to Matitsi Stories, a podcast by the Matitsi Museums exploring Matitsi area history through its people, places, and events. This season, we're examining national and international conflicts through the lives of local veterans. And this episode is one of a two-part episode covering World War I. Well, you know, there's a lot of debate about how and why the war started, but um, basically in, the, in late July, early August of 1914, uh, the fighting for World War I began. And um, the initial kind of spark for this event was an assassination of a, uh, an heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, which was in June of, of 1914. But um, it, it took several weeks and a lot of diplomacy before the war actually started. And then um, really by... 1915, the sides had uh, really been drawn and it became a global conflict. So it was the British Empire, the French Empire. So, you know, all of their overseas colonies, um, the Russian Empire with its huge <laughs> uh, land empire, uh, a raid against um, the uh, German Empire and the Habsburg or Austro-Hungarian Empire and other players joined. So Italy became part of the war in uh, 1915 on the the British and the French side. Japan was an ally, so it was also part of the British and French side. Uh, Bulgaria joined the Germans, you know, that kind of thing. And the U.S., of course, joined in 1917. Um, But uh, the war was fought in multiple places around the world. Most people think of the Western Front, but it was also fought... um, all over Eastern Europe, in the Caucasus, in the Eastern Mediterranean, in North Africa, in what is today Iraq and Iran, what is today um, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, that area, um, East Africa, West Africa, and Southwest Africa. Those were the main areas, plus a naval war. So it really is a global war. That was Tammy Proctor, Department Head and Distinguished Professor of History at Utah State University. She specializes in modern European history. World War I was a war unlike any previous war. New weapons and technology were employed and countries from every populated continent were involved. Because the conflict was so complex, we've decided to break this episode into two parts. So this first part is going to give you an understanding of the conflict in general what happened, and when it happened. The second part is going to focus on Company K, a group of Wyoming National Guardsmen sent to serve in France. We begin with a look at how the world operated leading up to World War I. Uh, I'm Carl Strickwerda. I'm a historian. I have uh, taught at colleges and universities literally from coast to coast. Uh, University of California, University of Kansas. Um, I was the dean at the College of William & Mary. And I ended my career as uh, president of Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. And I do work on basically the area of uh, First World War. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating part of the story because uh, it really is truly a global war, even though the vast majority of fighting is done in Europe. 
uh, in France and Belgium and then in uh, basically Russia, and then somewhat in what we call the Mideast now. But the world economy as a whole really makes a difference in the war. I mean, the Germans are convinced that they can win because Britain is the one that's dependent on that world economy. And if they unleash their submarines uh, and take the risk that the United States comes into the war because we sink their sh- they sink our ships, they can starve Britain out. But as it turns out, Germany is actually almost as dependent on that world economy as Britain. Uh, Germany needs oil, it needs grain, it needs a lot of these things that it doesn't have. And Britain, once the United States and Britain solve the submarine problem, Britain is bringing in, and the United States helps it, we bring in, bring in wheat from our Australia and um, you know, uh, from Canada, we bring in supplies from Brazil and the whole of the British colonial empire. And of course, all the British investments that they've made in that global economy, you know, the money from that basically helps the, the British war effort. So in the end, the, the world global economy helps the Allied side win. We have the oil, we have the grain, um, you know, we have the resources in Germany, um, just doesn't, and they are by far the best military power in the war, uh, but they lose in terms of the, the resources they can't win. Um, well, first, I, sh- I should say that the U.S. is not uninvolved prior to 1917. Um, as a neutral nation, they're handling a lot of the diplomatic pieces of the war, and the United States is also feeding occupied Belgium. They're feeding about 10 million people a day who are living under uh, occupation. So it's a... Um, uh, I don't want to suggest the U.S. is, is doing nothing. But in 1914, you know, more than a quarter of the U.S. population is of a German-speaking background. And so it's not clear in 1914 which side the U.S. would join, right? Whether they would join the Germans or whether they, if they were to join. Um, and there's a lot of debate about it. Uh, the things that changed, I think, in 1915, uh, the German uh, U-boats sunk uh, the liner, the Lusitania, which was a British liner, but it had a lot of Americans on board. And it it caused this outcry in the U.S. There was a propaganda campaign and you start to see public opinion shifting. So that's in 1915. And then in 1917, the Germans step up their U-boat campaign again. Um, the uh, the war has been dragging on. There's a lot of pressure on the U.S. to join. And I think Wilson felt like, Woodrow Wilson, the president, felt like the U.S. needed to be part of whatever the peace was going to be. They needed to be part of the solution. So to do that, you know, the U.S. had to be part of the war. So kind of a combination of the U-boat campaigns, German, um, uh, the Germans trying to, to induce Mexico to invade the U.S. This was a kind of diplomatic incident that took place, the Zimmerman telegram. And, um, and Wilson's increasing um, feeling that the U.S. needed to be part of the peace, whatever that was going to be. So that's, that's partly why the U.S. joins in 1907. On April 5th, 1917, the United States declares war in Germany. The United States has no standing army of any size at the time and quickly moves to remedy this through the Selective Service Act. The act requires men to register for military service. If their number is called, then they're required to serve. The first draft occurred on June 5th, 1917, and throughout the nation, 9,586,000 
508 men ages 21 to 31 registered at their local draft boards. In Matizi, so many men signed up for the draft that it appears they ran out of draft cards. And some men, such as Louis B. Schultheis, wrote down their information on stationery for Bowman's hardware. These Matizi draft cards are all signed by E.P. Bowman. And one can imagine how Bowman, owner of the local hardware store, felt signing draft cards for men who stopped by his hardware store on a regular basis. Some of the men note previous military experience on their draft registration. Curtis Elson Weibel, for instance, served for the United States Navy for four years before World War I. The draft also reveals past injuries that might have affected the fitness of individuals signing up for service. Charles Wilson notes a crippled foot on his draft papers, an injury which did in fact keep him from serving. Matthew Van Petten, however, writes he's not physically able to serve, and E.P. Bowman makes a note that he is in perfect health and capable of making a good soldier. Van Petten did end up serving and returned from France as a sergeant. While some men never did get called up for service, approximately 213 veterans of World War I lived in Matizi during some point in their life. They were sent to training camps throughout the United States before being shipped abroad. The majority of these left from Hoboken, New Jersey to arrive on the Western Front. It, you know, in <laughs> depends on which front you're looking at. Um, things in the Mediterranean are really starting to change. By 1917, the British have turned the tide. Um, I didn't mention Sarli earlier. The Ottoman Empire had also joined on the German side by this point, and they're fighting in um, Palestine and uh, modern-day Iraq. Um, and so they're starting to turn the tide there. Um, on the Eastern Front, the Russian Revolution is taking place, the first Russian Revolution in spring of 1917. So there's a lot of fear that the Russian Front will collapse. And on the Western Front, um, they're in a stalemate at this point. And what that means is that both sides have been launching these huge offensives, um, you know, millions of casualties on both sides, and they're not really moving um, toward any kind of resolution. And that's really where they are in spring of 1917 when the U.S. joins. The problem for the U.S. is that they don't have a standing army. Um, you know, they don't have a big trained army in 1917. So it takes them a long time to get um, a lot of soldiers to Europe. But really, it's spring of 1918. Um, and by that time, the Russians have left the war. So the, the, the Eastern Front is gone. So the, um, if you think of a comparison with World War II, where the Germans are fighting a two-front war um, for much of the, of the conflict in some way, right? Um, in the First World War, the Germans win. You know, they win on the Eastern Front um, and sign a peace treaty with the Russians in spring of 1918. So just about the time all these American soldiers come, the Germans move all of their forces to the West. And so it's a pretty formidable, you know, obstacle that the American army is facing when they get there. One of the first men from Matizzi to arrive in France is Constant Pete Irwin, and he soon makes a name for himself. On November 24th, 1917, a paper appears headlining, Matizzi Boy Thrills Nation by Act of Bravery. The American army was thrilled today by heroic action of a young lieutenant in saving the life of a soldier, a private, a member of a patrol, 
lost his way and went to sleep in a shell hole in no man's land last night. The patrol returned and it was found he was missing. At daylight, the Germans saw the American soldier near the line and opened fire with rifles and grenades. The soldier remained in the crater. A lieutenant, whose home is at Matitsi, Wyoming, saw the man was in danger of immediate death and went out over no man's land through a hail of enemy machine gun bullets for several hundred yards, got the soldier, and led him back to the American lines amid cheers. After being rescued, the soldier said that when he looked over the top of the crater, the enemy saw him immediately, and the first bullets and grenades nearly got him. The attention of the lieutenant was attracted by the firing, and through field glasses he saw the shrapnel helmet of his man in the crater. He gave orders for a no rifle or machine gun fire on the enemy lines, and then started out making part of the way through a depression in the ground. The Germans turned their attention on him, and for some minutes bullets whizzed on all sides, but none hit him. The soldier said he did not know in which direction his own lines were, otherwise he would have tried to get them himself. A few months later, the Matizzi News publishes a summary of a letter written by Constant to his mother, detailing a crawl of 300 yards to the lost private, who was so nervous he was unable to give Lieutenant Irwin an account of himself. Constant spent 20 days in the trenches, a unique experience for an American soldier, and noted that the soldiers would become accustomed to the noise of firing and could tell the difference between bullets, shrapnel, and other missiles. He remained in France until August 5, 1919. By the time of his departure, he had been wounded twice, including once at the Saint-Miel Offensive, and was the first American to receive the Croix de Guerre, a French Medal of Honor. American troops, though, for the most part, did not experience much trench warfare, if uh, except in the early days when they were training. Uh, they did not, if you see references to American troops going over the top, meaning going up over the top of the trench, it's generally not accurate because the Pershing told his troops, dig in temporarily if you have to, but don't dig trenches. Keep out in the open and keep on the attack. Commanding the troops in the trenches was you know, a, a difficult and tedious business. Uh, you had a stand-to in the morning, uh, generally at dawn, uh, because that was regarded as the ideal time for an attack, uh, when all the troops would stand up and be ready for an attack. When that didn't happen, then they could stand down again, uh, try to keep out of sight of enemy snipers. But at night is often when the biggest activity took, took place because commanders didn't want their troops to get just too settled in the trenches. So they'd order them to go on patrols into no man's land in between. And you'd have patrols by both sides coming out, sometimes meeting each other in no man's land, getting in, in, uh, in brutal combat. Um, other times trying to launch raids on enemy trenches to capture prisoners. It could be different in different areas. There, there were some areas um, up to the north that were very waterlogged uh, ground uh, because they were close to the sea. And there, the troops couldn't even dig trenches. They had to use uh, breastworks. There were other areas where the ground was made out of chalk uh, so that they dug these trenches. If you, if you watch the end of the movie, 1917, I think, 
they have a trench system dug into the chalk and you can see it's very white. Uh, in other areas, it was, it was dug in the dirt, but, but because of the heavy rain and parts of France and Belgium, they would get, they would get filled with mud. It wasn't just one continual line. It was trenches were in zigzags, uh, for a variety of tactical reasons, they had communication trenches running back and forth, all kinds of subsidiary trenches constantly being constructed. Uh, so it was a very complex network, really, of trenches rather than a line. Trench warfare was an important contributor to the influenza pandemic of 1918. I spoke with Carol Byerly of the University of Colorado to better understand the pandemic and its effect on the progression of World War One. So the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919 was um, the worst pandemic in human history in that it killed 50 million people at least in just 18 months. And the um, Black Death, the plague was horrible, but it took um, a number, you know, several years, decades to get, to kill all the people it did. But this was really um, fast and efficient because it was airborne. And um, we believe that it's the, the origin of it is, is not for sure, not um, certain, but the best guess is that it emerged in um, training camps in the Midwest in the United States in the spring of 1918. Um, influenza is a common um, disease. It comes through generally every year. And so it didn't create a lot of concern when it first came up. But then um, it appeared in the troops, among the troops in the West, Western um, front in Europe during the war, and the thought was that it traveled with American troops going across the Atlantic. And then um, my theory and the theory that others, that makes sense of the flu, is that it mutated that summer. At late that summer, it mutated into a particularly virulent and deadly flu. And that then um, exploded out of Europe in late August. And it traveled around the globe with the transportation lanes of war. And so it exploded in Brest, France, Boston, Massachusetts, and Bombay, India um, the same day. Um, and it then... Um, moved through the United States in about eight weeks, um, maybe 10 weeks, but it, it peaked in the middle of October and it would last maybe four to six weeks in a certain town. Um, and then that was the second deadly wave. And this second deadly wave is what hit the troops during um, the final months of the fighting in World War I. And it um, severely handicapped the American troops, and but it, it hit all of the armies, we believe. And there's research done on each army, and it had high um, incidence of influenza. And then it 
kind of died down in December and January, and then it emerged in a third wave in 1919. And, um, and then swept around the world again and killed more people. And it killed a lot of soldiers in the occupation army in uh, the United States in 1919. And then it died down again. And so some people say there's it, it lasted into the 1920. I don't say that because the dramatic curves really um, calm down. Um, and so people don't really, there are two theories about why it stopped. One is that it mutated back into a less virulent form or that it had just gotten everybody it was gonna get. <laughs> and so there wasn't anybody susceptible to it anymore. And it, the influence itself didn't kill people. It was um, a, a pneumonia that would, uh, opportunistic pneumonia, and that pneumonia, and that would be several bacterial infections, not just one, um, but there are several strains of bacteria that would kill people. And this is a time before antibiotics. Another thing that's very important to know about this particular epidemic is that um, it had very it had very high morbidity sickness rate, but low mortality. So it killed a lot of people because so many people got sick, but only about two to four percent of the people who got sick died. What's of consequence with the with the pandemic and in the army, which is my expertise, is you may only lose. The, the United States Army, the American Expeditionary Force, only lost maybe about 36,000 to the flu in France, 55,000 in all. But, um, but about a quarter at the very lowest estimate of all the soldiers got sick. So the Army was 4 million, and so that means a million people got sick. And for every person, and this is in the um, uh, military sector, this happened in the civilian sector as well. And for every person you have sick, you have to have someone taking care of them. Or in the army, you've got nurses and doctors and stretcher bearers and ambulance drivers. And so it consumes enormous amounts of resources. And people were not just sick for a while. They were, um, they could be sick for weeks and weakened. So it was a debilitating disease. It was, um, airborne respiratory um, disease. So it was almost impossible to stop. People used masks, which we used to think didn't really make any difference. And now the science is changing. So maybe using masks might've worked. They used, they did a lot of serums. You hear a lot about serum today. They were doing serums back in 1918. They were taking fluid from anybody who survived and jabbing it into other people to see if it would work. And sometimes they said, oh, we're seeing a difference. And most of the time it made no difference. They did mouthwashes and they did. Um, the, on the only way you really could treat influenza was to prevent people from getting pneumonia. And that was to put them to bed, keep them warm and hydrated. And so it was nursing. It was a huge scientific phenomenon and and my medical officers and scientists were they they published a hundred hundreds of papers on it what was causing this it was on the ships and camps and in field hospitals they they 
recorded a lot of this, but then it didn't, it kind of disappeared from the national memory. Um, and that's, is, a, is another mystery of why people turned away from it, why they didn't remember it, why they didn't talk about it, why it's not in any of our history, why it's not in your history books, why people don't teach this. The pandemic swept through troops in France, including a group of soldiers from Sage Creek. After the war on June 18, 1919, the Northern Wyoming Herald reports that only six of the seven Sage Creek boys returned from France. They had all contracted influenza, and one, Reuben Miller, had developed a deadly case of pneumonia. Although the Sage Creek boys were not in the thick of things like Constant Irwin, they played an important role in the military. They took care of the Army's mules and horses. So horses and, and mules were, were used by all armies very heavily throughout the war for things like pulling artillery, pulling ammunition, for um, transporting supplies to and from the front, for all kinds of purposes. And that's one of the, the great tragedies of the war is that these, these poor animals suffered terribly. Uh, they were sometimes that they would use uh, gas masks for their horses, but as you can imagine, uh, they're not easy to put on, they're not easy to keep on. Uh, so when the Americans came into the war, yeah, um, horses were already being used heavily and American forces used them too. One thing that didn't happen was there was an expectation that cavalry would be able to have an impact uh, on the front, but that just didn't happen because of machine guns and the rest. One other interesting thing about animals is that the Germans uh, were very big on using messenger dogs at the front uh, to carry uh, reports from, from one unit to another. And so uh, you'll often see photos of Germans, they're German shepherds usually, they use other dogs too. Uh, who would carry messages all over the battlefield. Um, the Americans tended to use pigeons, uh, to use, to use uh, carrier pigeons to, to carry their, their messages rather than dogs. But even so, dogs were, were used all along the front. One of the first American heroes uh, was Stubby the War Dog who was, uh, he, he was awarded all kinds of medals for his bravery and for capturing a German soldier. Uh, and you can still see him on display in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. 52,137 draft mules and 9,240 pack mules were used by the American Expeditionary Forces in Europe during the Great War. Their job was dangerous. Hundreds of thousands of horses died from artillery fire, skin disorders, or poison gas. Veterinary hospitals were established to treat horses and mules, ensuring they could continue to deliver vital supplies to the front. Bruce Early, Roy Predmore, Lloyd Robbins, and Arthur Royce all served in veterinary units in France. Horses and mules were better than vehicles at navigating across the varied terrain and deep mud of the Western Front. I know. Well, and I think what student what students usually find interesting is that there's so many different environments as part of the war. You know, if you were fighting in Italy and Austria, Hungary, you were in the mountains. You know, you had to climb a mountain to get to your station, um, and you had to you know take your guns apart and bring them up with you. 
if you were fighting in East Africa, um, you couldn't use pack animals because they died at too high a rate. So there were humans carrying all the stuff, you know, and I think that that, that diversity of experience um, is something that gets lost a lot of times when we tell the story of World War I. Horses were important during World War I, but the war was a transitional war. Technology was changing and the war reflected that. So World War I kind of seems like this meeting of technology almost, or a transition of technology, because you have the horses, but then you also have things that we're familiar with today, like tanks and airplanes and um, things like that. Was this the first conflict that where this happened, or was there something beforehand that kind of set this up? Technology certainly played a role in, in earlier wars. Um, Trench warfare happened in the Civil War. Uh, technology played a role in the Civil War, certainly, and the, the, the vast casualties, three-quarters of a million casualties in the Civil War. But World War I was the first war uh, in which mass technology overwhelmed the battlefield. Uh, technology created heavy artillery, heavy artillery concentrations, new types of ordnance, machine guns, poison gas, tanks, airplanes, everything else. It was the first war to, to really employ all of these forms of technology. And yet you're right when you say it was transitional because there were certain areas where the technology really lags behind. And, and the most important one was communications, really. Uh, an example of that is why was trench warfare so persistent? Because when the infantry attacked and the infantry made a breakthrough in the enemy lines, they had no way of communicating back to headquarters exactly where and when they had made a breakthrough. They could use pigeons, they could use dogs, they could send runners out, sometimes somebody on horseback uh, out with a message. But that was it, because when they used telephones with telephone wires, the wires were cut by artillery. There was no effective wireless technology then. And that was why by the time you made a breakthrough, by the time you got word back to headquarters that you'd made a breakthrough, the enemy would have already sealed it off. So the the technology, both when it existed and when it didn't exist, both of them conspired to make the fighting as ugly as it was. The First World War is a global war, and it's one that sets the stage for the rest of the 20th century. Just in terms of men on the front, we don't make that much difference in the war. Okay, so we come in late, it's really only about four or five months in 19, 1918 where we make a difference. But in other ways, the United States is the critical factor in the war because it is our money, our food, our munitions, our supplies that keep Britain and France in the war, especially because Germany's knocked Russia out of the war. So now Germany finally has a one front war, which it's won it all along. So Germany in 1917, 18 can just fight on the Western Front, and it thinks it can win. But America makes the difference. Um, so in that sense, America makes really all the difference in, in the war, even though, oddly, you know, we don't 
we don't have that many combat deaths, but we're hugely important in terms of our Navy, our supplies, uh, and, and just the, the huge economic difference we make. And in that way, too, the United States comes out of the, uh, out of the uh, war as a world power for the first time, and in some ways the greatest world power by far. And yet we don't know that we really want to play that role. So it takes us about another 20 years before we decide, well, maybe we do want to play this role. So that's one reason the 1920s and 30s are such a complicated period. You have this country that could dominate things, the United States, uh, but we don't want to. We don't want to really get involved that much. Um, but so that the United States plays a kind of interesting role in World War One, as opposed to World War Two, where we're we're the we're the sole country that knocks Japan out of the war, and Soviet Russia makes a huge difference in defeating Nazi Germany. But otherwise, it's the United States and Europe as well. Um, so that the, the two wars in that way are very different, but. The United States is really the one that makes a difference in terms of the Allies winning uh, in the First World War. That's it for part one of our World War I episode. Thank you so much to Kathleen Holzer, who compiled the original research for this project. And for complete notes on all of the Matizzi veterans, you can visit the show notes. Thank you to Carol Byerly, who recorded her interview not once but twice because of a technical faux pas. And thank you to all of the rest of our panelists. You'll hear more from them in the upcoming part two of World War One episode. Next time we'll focus on Company K and where they were throughout World War One, as well as how it affected them after. 